Welcome to Anti-Aging Unraveled with Dr. Lori Gerber. The body is one of the most complicated systems in the universe. Dr. Gerber and her guests explore integrative medicine and cosmetic dermatology, combining traditional medicine, alternative health practices, new innovations, and technology, which work together to help you look and feel natural and age gracefully. Now, here is your host, Dr. Lori Gerber. Good evening, everybody from the East Coast. Again, it's another rainy Wednesday night. Um, I don't know if this is an omen, but it seems to happen every week. So um, I'm hoping you guys are all cuddled up on the couch, and even though it's steamy outside during the rain, and and, uh, joining me for this really interesting podcast. It's actually one of my favorite topics. Um, It's using fat for fuel and as an energy source. And I think um, it's a really interesting history of how we got to where we are um, as a carbohydrate-based society. And I've gotten a lot of questions about whether or not, um, what can help them lose weight this summer. So I think this is a really great topic, um, using fat for fuel and actually shifting our thought process behind what we're using for our energy sources and how to lose weight. I will have a guest about halfway through. Um, it is Dr. Mr. Peter Defty. You guys have heard him before talking about his product, Vespa. Vespa is one of my favorite products, and actually I can't take credit for finding it. Um, my husband, Marcus, found it, and it is one of our favorite products to train and for helping to get us back on track from a weight loss perspective and get us what we call fat adapted, which means we're using fat as our basic energy source. So he'll be joining us in about 30 minutes. I'm going to go through some of the information um, that I like to talk about and try to make it really, really simple for you guys so you understand why, um, I guess, fat has been poo-pooed for a lot of years and and carbohydrates have been the um, this, the forefront of a diet and what we should be eating, which is really a, a misconception. So I found a great uh, quote to kind of start out our night, and it's um, from a website that's Banting, um, which is my favorite type of diet, if you will, or eating regimen, and it's from, um, I think it's called realmealrevolution.com, and they say real health is, is this in 50 words or less, and it's eat vegetables, meat, nuts, seeds, little fruit, and minimal starch eat real fats, avoid sugar, grains, seed oils, and processed food, taste new dishes, protect your gut, eat when hungry, drink when thirsty, fast occasionally, sleep well, exercise, relax, socialize, listen to your body, escape routine, seek adventure, and keep improving. And I love that for a lot of reasons. I think um, there's a lot of things in there that are very relevant to what I do in medicine, Um, protecting your gut being one of them, sleeping well, helping you to get you sleep well or sleep better. Um, But I think one of the biggest things is eat when hungry, um, taste new dishes, not be stuck in a single routine, and really listening to your body, eating when you feel like you're hungry, not necessarily because you're told that you're supposed to eat small frequent meals. So why is this type of eating... um, important. What does it do for you? We're going to get to that in a minute, but I think one of the main points to talk about, and I'm not going to go into the pathophysiology. I thought about going through some of that with you guys, but in all honesty, it really doesn't matter as long as you trust me and you trust what I'm saying. And fat generates more than two times the amount of energy as the form of ATP, which is what our bodies use versus carbohydrates. So ATP from glucose, from one glucose molecule, is about 30 to 32 of them. So you get 30 to 32 ATP molecules for energy. A fat molecule nets about 107 ATP, okay? So 
when you just look at numbers and strictly um, what we would say, you know, output, you're going to get a lot more energy from breaking down a piece of fat than you will a piece of a carbohydrate or, or glucose. Okay. So why don't we use or why aren't we taught to eat fat? And we're always taught to eat, you know, our base of our food pyramid is, is starches or carbohydrates. And I think that's where we're going to get down to um, the nitty gritty of that tonight. And, and the other thing I think is important to understand is that you don't get fat from eating fat. Yes, maybe overeating fat, but fat in itself does not make you fat. It is an essential nutrient. It is not produced by the body. If anybody watches any of those shows um, about survival, you, one of the first things they look for for food sources is fat and, and fishing and big game, right? Because they want to get the animal, the animal fats and proteins. So I think you need to really understand that our body will produce glucose from our own body fat and from the fat we ingest. So we can actually create that. We don't need to eat it. And if you think about back in the caveman time, you know, we weren't necessarily eating breads and pastas and processed carbohydrates, nor were we eating a lot of tropical fruits or anything of that sort. Yes, we might have been doing berries and, and, and things that might grow on tropical trees in moderation, but that wasn't the primary source of our food. We didn't have a primary glucose source. So when we look at our evolution, and I actually really found this really great quote, um, when we look, we put together the all of the human race and how long it's been in existence, and you literally put all of their food um, eating habits in one big line, Less than 5% of the time have we been eating a diet that was higher, high in carbohydrates. Um, so, you know, this is a, a relatively new phenomenon and as is evident by the amount of diabetes that is in our society. And I think we're going to um, uncover some of that information in a minute. But, it, you know, diabetes really is a, gen, is a disease of the last 30, 40 years. Um, we can argue maybe a little bit longer than that, but it's been an epidemic for about that long. And it's because of our food choices and what we're deciding to do with our base of our food pyramid. So I'm going to give you a little, um, and it, the diet that I do love is called Banting. And I'm going to give you a little history on Banting. And I actually learned about this when I first started eating this way. Um, they have a great cookbook as well that's one of my favorites. But William Banting was a British undertaker. He was obese. He wanted to lose weight. And in 1862, he went to his doctor and his doctor gave him this radical eating plan that was high in fat and fewer carbs. And by eating this way, he lost a ton of weight. And he actually read a, wrote a letter to the public proposing that other people do the same thing. And it was called the Letter on Corpulence. And it became distributed all over the world. And it was extremely popular. And it became actually a colloquial terminology to eat banting or bant style of eating. And what that is, is gluten-free, pretty much carb-free, and it became a really the norm. So, you know, what we see in history is it was the standard of treatment and weight loss in all European and North American med schools, um, really all the way up until the late 1950s. And in, the 19, in 1959, all of a sudden it disappeared out of the medical journals and nutritional textbooks. Um, so, you know, why is that? And what happened, I think, is really the critical turning point in, in really where disease changed um, progression and where diabetes actually started to take over. And also, um, if we think about how there was a paradigm shift in 
if we just think about the United States and the health of, of Americans in general, prior to what I like to call the TV dinner age, um, everything was fresh, everything was whole food, and then everything became processed. And we, we changed our food pyramid, and we're, I'm going to talk about that in a minute. And that really changed the amount of inflammation and what our body was able to do with these sugar sources. So before I get to the next kind of historical point, I want to point out that when you go through glucose metabolism and you go through fat metabolism, glucose actually makes what's called lactic acid when it's broken down. Fat does not have the same process. So when we talk about what is a cleaner energy source, breaking down glucose creates more oxidation and, and um, more lactic acid. So that lactic acid builds up and it's a, to it's a toxic product. So recovery is longer to get because you have to get that out of your muscles and your body from using glucose as your energy source with a workout or even just in your daily activity. Whereas when you start doing cleaner fat sources, you do not have that buildup. Um, I, I like to call it the toxic buildup, but it, it really is just like a lactic acid buildup. So when we think about eating these foods, we should be thinking about it from more than just the standpoint that it's good for us. It's helping with recovery. It's helping with detoxification. It's helping reduce inflammation. And it's also helping to give you more energy. So, you know, there are a lot of things that are proven to be, um, to happen when you eat lower fat or sorry, lower carbs and lower sugar and higher fat. And when I say higher fat, it's a very mildly higher fat. It's a dramatically lower carbohydrate load, okay? We're not talking about forcing um, what I like to call Atkins-esque type fats. This is a very mild increase in your fat intake, um, but it's a dramatic decrease in your carbohydrate. So weight loss is a big thing. Reversing type 2 diabetes, which I've alluded to. Um, IBS symptoms get better, the, the lack of fructose and the decrease in the inflammation blood pressures get better, sleep gets better, energy gets better. We're going to talk about athletic performance in a few minutes. Um, achy bones and joints are almost, actually almost always a, um, a top contender with getting improvement with um, a fat adaptive metabolism. Heartburn symptoms. This is a big one. A lot of people have sensitivity to carbohydrates in general. And when they reduce their intake, their heartburn and their reflux gets better. A lot of hormone improvement. When you actually put fat back into your diet, you're going to improve your hormones by the nature of what they're made from, which is cholesterol, and cholesterol comes from fats, right? So you're going to get better fertility, actually, better hormone regulation, um, improve in, in what's called PCOS, which is an ovary, um, it's a cystic ovary disorder. Gout gets better. This was a really, really big one. And I think when we talk about gout, a lot of the times we focus on just strictly on uric acids and shellfish, but sugars can definitely set off gout as well. And, and we see a, dra a drastic improvement in gout symptoms. Um, I think one of the biggest one overall is mental clarity. And I find that when I'm on a sugar-based diet, that my mental clarity is great in bursts. And then when that glucose wears off, my mental clarity goes down. And we're going to kind of talk about why that is, but the brain loves to... Um, work off of glucose when it's available. And if you find that you're starting to go off these carbs and you get cloudy headed, there are ways to help that. Um, it will be easier if you do some of the tips that I'm giving you um, as we move along. So 
listen to the end of the podcast so you know how to implement this in your own life. Okay, so let's talk about banting again and and how that became a shift in 1959. And in 1953, there was a guy, his name was Ansel Keys, and he basically put out a a paper. And this study said it, it, he took seven countries and he basically did a, a an overall view of their diet and said this, the conclusion was, and it was only seven countries, and that's one of the biggest, I guess, uh, flaws of this study, um, is that if you eat, there's no relationship between fat, that, sorry, there is a relationship between taking in sugar or fats and getting a heart attack. So basically he was saying that higher fat diet was a positive relation or positive correlation to getting a heart attack. Now, why was this flawed? Well, you know, it was only however many countries, seven countries. It should have been 22 countries at the time. Um, and one of the biggest countries that they chose to exclude was Italy, which had a very um, good diet that actually probably would have contradicted this, um, this study. So when he came out and said this, Ansel Keys, he basically started to refute some other big players in the industry and really sweep all of their information under the carpet. And, and we're going to get to the fall of, um, his name was John Yudkin, but he was trying to say that sugar was creating heart disease and his, the intensely negative connotation that was put onto him um, that this could not be correct as time moved forward, especially by the UK and the United States, it really ruined his career. And, and this guy was actually saying, listen, you, you're all wrong. This is not a fat issue. This is a sugar issue. So we're going to talk a little bit about him as well. But, you know, I think as we fast forward from the 50s to the 60s, you're going to find that in the 60s, the sugar industry played a huge role in what I call the, the actual key paradigm shift in how we look at food. And the sugar industry actually funded their own studies that were published um, to refute any studies that were out there that said sugar was basically responsible in heart disease. And they did their own studies and said, no, 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 guys, this is not true. Um, nowhere was it written that they funded, there was no disclosure that it was funded by the sugar industry. However, they put out these what we would call um, a literature review, which is a, a, a broad sweep of, of literature looking at all of them and saying there was a problem with all the studies that said sugar was the issue, but it had to be and concluded that fats were the problem and that Americans needed to cut fats out of their diet. And that was the best way to address heart disease. And if that were, you know, if that were put on there somewhere that that was maybe backed or someone was paying for it, I think maybe that, are, it would be a little bit different. Um, remember, the sugar industry played a huge role, uh, had a massive lobbying interest, um, politically speaking, at that time. And so what happened is the United States took that and they decided to say, okay, sugar is the good guy, right? And fat is the bad guy. And if anyone was around during those decades, what happened is all of a sudden, everything was low fat on the shelves, right? You know, you fast forward, it becomes TV dinners. Everything's low fat on the shelves. Low fat diets were, were like the thing, they were the way of the future. And I mean, even think back to 80s, Richard Simmons, low fat and, and, and exercise. And what happened? 
is we got more diabetes. So the truth is that a high carbohydrate diet, particularly in refined carbohydrates um, and sugar, is really the cause of obesity, diabetes, and other chronic illnesses. Also vegetable oils and their derivatives, so like, like margarine, are also key factors in heart disease. So even though all these manufacturers are literally telling us um, that we, we need to avoid all fats, it's really the sugar content. So in 1977, after this Sugar Research Foundation put out all these studies and, and paid for them themselves, the government said, all right, everybody, we're going to set a new set of guidelines for eating, um, specifically in the schools, but also it was a massive campaign to help support our crop farmers and also the sugar industry. And it was the exact opposite of what was being done before 1953. And that was basically that everybody should have an extreme large amount of carbohydrates as a base of their food pyramid. So it was six to 11 portions of grains a day and that sugar was absolutely fine to add to everything. And that theory was adopted across almost all of the Western world. And again, that's when these low fat products hit the shelves. And again, it's no coincidence that in the 1980s, late 1970s and up, as long as I can remember, and, and I'm born in 78, that we've had this rise in obesity and diabetes and we can't control it. And despite the fact that we're telling people to lose weight, we're not really telling them the right way to do it, right? So we have this, this uh, oxymoron, if you will, um, of, of, and if you look back at the literature, it's there. I mean, I looked at Yudkin's literature, which is what I alluded to earlier, um, who really just got decimated for his belief that dietary fat and not sugar was to blame for cardiovascular disease. And Ansel Keys and a lot of his connections were able to really squash his information. And, um, you know, it, had it been the other way around, I think the, our, um, our medical problems would be totally different. I mean, obviously we'd have medical issues, but they, we wouldn't have the diabetes and the obesity issues that we have right now. So I think that's a really key point to understand when we're talking about um, maybe not mainstream information. So how do we do this? How do we deplete our stores of sugar? Because that's the key. We have stores of glycogen and then we eat sugar. So in order to lose weight and to tap into our fat stores, we have to deplete our glycogen. And that takes, you know, about 24 hours because well, that's how long it takes to replete it. So I always say, if you're working out, figure 60 minutes, 30 minutes, if it's hardcore, you're going to deplete most of your glycogen that's in there. To refuel that, it's going to take a good day to literally put that back. And there's about 100 to 150 grams of glycogen in the liver. And that... um basically is key to understanding how long it's going to take you to fall off the wagon too, right? So by the same token of being able to avoid your sugars, if you go back to carbohydrates for more than 24 hours, you're going to actually have a new glycogen store. And that's not necessarily what we want because as long as there's a lot of glycogen, then we won't tap into our body fat for fuel, our, our, especially because our bodies are so trained to go towards the quickest and what we call, I call it the crack, because sugar is an opioid essentially, and it is addictive. So it will essentially go to the path of least resistance, which is the glycogen or the glucose that you're taking in first. So we have to deplete that. 
Banting suggests about two weeks of, of glycogen or sorry, glucose um, uh, avoidance. So you're really going to stay off all of your sugars, your your cookies, cakes, candies, crackers, obviously all of that stuff, but also your high fr sugary fruits. Um, and don't forget your things that people forget all the time, like legumes and beans and that kind of thing, which have a lot of carbs in them because when you break them open, they're mushy, right? So they're, I always say you break it open and it's mushy. It typically has a little bit of a carbohydrate content, even if it does have some protein. Um, you want to avoid all of those. And why for two weeks? Well, you know, in order to really efficiently get your brain and your body working off of fat, you really need to go through the sugar detoxification process. Even though your glycogen is gone relatively quickly, your brain and your body still wants to work off of sugar. And we need to make it not want to do that. So that is when adding a little bit of extra fats into the mix is really key. And, you know, to put this in perspective, most Americans have about 88 to 120 grams of sugar a day. When in reality, we should have at the most about 24 grams of sugar a day. And um, what I say, that's for females. Men, it's about 36. I actually say if you're going to have sugar, it should really have no more than five grams per serving. And you really should only do that once or twice a day. So we're really looking at very, very low carbohydrate loads. And what does that do to you? Well, it's going to make you have some mental symptoms, maybe a little bit of depression, anxiety, some sleep issues. I think brain fog is the biggest complaint. Obviously, sugar cravings for the first couple of days. Adding a little bit of fat into that in the form of I like almond butter. Um, some of us use MCT coffees or buttered coffees. Um, the other thing that I really like is um, a little bit of mozzarella cheese. You know, there's definitely ways to curb those cravings because once your body taps into that fat and makes glucose out of it, you're going to feel a lot better. And it's going to be a longer acting source, right? We talked about that ATP production. So to me, yes, you're going to have two weeks of a little bit of uncomfortability, but you're going to feel better when you get through those two weeks. So look at labels. It's, a, it's label reading. Zero to five grams per serving is, is the most that you should have. And honestly, that's after that first two weeks. The first two weeks, you really need to avoid it if you can. Um, the other physical symptoms, lightheaded, nausea, a little bit of dizziness, they're really common. Honestly, the first couple of days, it's usually fine. It's usually a day like four, five, six. Um, after your body starts to really build up some, um, we call them ketones or toxins, you'll start to feel a little bit lightheaded and dizzy. That goes away pretty quickly with fat replacement. Um, I find it to be really easy just to take a little bit of um, almond butter packet like a Justin's almond butter with me um, or something like that. So what do you do? What do I do to help you succeed? And, and that's where Peter is going to come in and, and talk to us a little bit about his products as well. But one, you need salt. Sodium is huge. When you don't have sugar, your body wastes water. So you dehydrate, especially with workouts. So I like pickle juice as a, as a source, but you can do a little salt, like whatever is your, is your preference. Um, a little bit of salt goes a long way, especially in the morning and the afternoon. For me, it's having easy fat sources at hand, right? Don't wait until you're starving to try to put that fat back. Um, some hard-boiled eggs, some uh, scrambled eggs, almond butter packets, MCT oil. I love cut-up avocado. Um, nuts in moderation, right? Remember, fats do have more calories 
So you do have to do this in moderation. But when you cut that sugar out and all those carbohydrates out and only eat when you're hungry, you're going to find that your calorie intake is much lower anyway. Um, and I guess Peter's going to tell us one of his favorite comments about breakfast. But um, again, it kind of goes back to eating when you're hungry and not eating just to eat. And L-carnitine is one of my favorites. I do like L-carnitine in the form of a shot um, with a B12 shot. It helps to um, in fatty acid metabolism. So when you're trying to make that ATP, it really, really helps to get that energy production and get, get the fat metabolism rolling. And, and then last but not least, before I go to some of my gut protocols is Vespa. And for me, when I want to get back on track and, and I can, not, because Peter's here is not why I'm saying this, I will start taking Vespa again, um, not just with my workouts before um, when my day starts and usually late afternoon when I start getting hungry when I come home. It really helps you to tap into your fat stores so that you don't feel as hungry, which is what we want to do. We want to lose that weight by tapping into our own fat stores. And, and I alluded a little in that comment, that 50 words, that gut, gut repair, cortisol repair, cellular repair, to me, they're so important in weight loss. And if we don't address those, you're not just going to lose weight by switching to fat metabolism. Initially, you will, right? Because you're going to cut out a lot of calories and probably carbohydrates that are bloating you and creating an um, extra caloric intake. But if your gut isn't healthy, if your adrenals and cortisol aren't regulating your insulin levels, um, you're not going to get better. So by that same token, I have a repair and reset protocol. Um, for those of you that are watching, this is one of my products. It's it's called Gut Calm, and it is part of my repair series. It calms the lining and inflammation. And then we have the um, reset, which helps with motility. Um, it also helps with um, putting back... Um, what we say, uh, antibodies into the gut to repopulate it. We have the pro the proenzymes and the um, probiotic and the prebiotics. So, and helping with the detox symptoms. So I have all of that to help you. We have olive leaf extract, glandulars to help with cortisol, liver capsules to help with liver function and metabolism. And of course, high dose vitamin D and glutathione, um, which helps with metabolism and cellular um, detox. If you don't do these things, Trust me, you're going to get to a set point and you're going to be stuck. And I guarantee you're going to be calling me. It happens probably about 30 times a day. So on that note, I am going to bring in Peter. And I'm sorry I left you waiting for a minute, Peter. And this is Peter Dufty, guys. I'm going to just give him a brief intro. And let's see here. Let me pull up his intro for you guys. So he is a developer of the Optimized Fat Metabolism Program. Um, he is also the general manager of Vespa products. And I think the most important one of all is that he's the finisher of these awesome races, the Leadville in 2009, um, it's a 100 miler and the 2006 Western States, which is a crazy race as well. And sub 24 hour, which is even more amazing and sub 25 hour and, um, climbing mountains yesterday, which we're going to talk about. So we have about 28 minutes. And I hope you heard all of my little uh, blurbs and isms today, Peter. So, well, no, I came in with the history of Ansel Keys, which is a good place to start. Oh, good. Okay. Hey, listen, <laughs> no. that's perfect. So, um, I promised our listeners that we would keep it simple. So, I, you know, I want to, I, I've been brave, you know, praising Vespa, and we do have a code for you guys. I will put that up on the site for you so that you can link right directly to it to get your discount off of Vespa for um, listening today. But I want to talk about 
one, why, what is this paradigm shift? You, you call the five biggest shifts from carbohydrates to fat for fuel. And you have a five paradigm shifts that you like, that are your key points. And okay. yeah. that's kind of where I wanted to start. Yeah. Well, we're just going to leave me away. way. Leave me, <laughs> leave me. Tell yeah, me what to do. No worries. So let, let me, I'm going to actually start because we went through the first, kind of the first two. So let's talk about damage prevention over recovery. So why, why do fat adapted, right? Why does that help you to prevent damage? And why are we stressing that instead of the after effect, right? The recovery aspect. Okay. Yeah. One of the first things that athletes I've worked with over the years notice about Vespa, there's two things, the mental focus, of course, which you notice, but the recovery is off the charts. They're just not, they don't have the DOMS and muscle soreness after. They might have some joint stiffness and all that, but they just recover really quickly. And this is where we have to change that paradigm because it's not really that you, Vespa has this magic voodoo that makes you recover faster. It's just, it's simply because that by increasing your fat oxidation through beta beta oxidation, which is the core fat burning mechanism, right? Um, You increasing your fat burning reduces oxidative stress. And and when people hear about this thing called free radicals and you need antioxidants, you know, it's like, I'm thinking, why don't we, instead of needing a bunch of antioxidants, let's prevent the damage in the first place. And that's where, beta oxidation comes in. And so Vespa has been shown to increase fat oxidation in athletes from half a gram to a full gram a minute, which is huge um, because your listeners won't know what that means, but that, that kind of increase in, in, in fat ox peak fat oxidation is just, is, you know, mind blowing. It's, it's a huge jump. So that huge shift to, to metabolizing fat as fuel prevents the oxidative stress, prevents those free radicals from forming. Um, so you don't do that damage on a, on a cellular level. You don't damage, you don't impact your mitochondria. There's a lot of talk about mitochondrial health now, cellular health. Um, that's, that's one of the, the, the biggest things. And then, um, in these weird times, I want to bring up one other thing that, that I found that was really interesting, uh, you know, a little over a year ago, about 14 months ago, 15 months ago, when something kind of came along, I started looking into the primary literature and one of the very basic things, like, you know, we're talking about fat as your fuel and like it makes sense, right? Evolutionarily, we're meant to burn fat aerobically, right? Well, here's another thing that comes right out of the basic physiology textbooks. Guess what? RNA, RNA viruses replicate glycolytically. Now, that's a big word, but it means they burn sugar. So, if you're burning a lot of sugar, you're actually inviting an RNA virus, no matter what it is. Um, had a conversation on the mountain yesterday with, a, with a, a psychiatrist about this. You're inviting those viruses in to have literally a party and an orgy, a replication orgy, right? And, but if you're fat adapted, that beta oxidation doesn't make it a very good environment for virus replication, which is in fact why my athletes have surveyed them over the years and nobody gets the flu in the winter. And there's some merging uh, studies on on people on low carb diets having much less impact from the current situation. So there's a lot of reasons to shift your metabolism um, towards being able to to burn fat both on that 
everyday physical level where you're not getting hangry every couple hours to that cellular level where you're getting really robust mitochondria. So let's talk about how you used it. Speaking of being on the mountain. So you, you went out yesterday and, and, and I'm, I don't know, do you want to tell your age? You can say it however. I mean, you're, 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 it's like it's it's the way evolution works, Lori. You're you're easy on the eyes. You can say whatever you want, and I'll I'll follow. Well, I'm just these, <laughs> right? So right. Uh, you know, you went out in the mountain and you climbed a mountain. I'll let you tell the story. And I Mount Whitney, yeah, Mount Whitney. So and yesterday, yeah, it's, Go ahead. it's pretty incredible, guys. So I mean, the, the use of this product and and what it's done for improving um, just the utilization of your your body stores of fat as energy, right? I mean, he, he literally did this whole climb and that's what he'll tell you. So go for yeah. it. So to start with, I'm, I'm guinea pig number one with all I do with both Vespa and with this optimized fat uh, metabolism protocol. So I want to start, start off with the question. Uh, we talked about this. What's, why do they tell us Mm-hmm. Um, what, why is breakfast the most important meal of the day? Who's that really important to, right? And Laura, you, it's a rhetorical question between us, but for the audience, they tell you, you know, you're told breakfast is the most important meal of the day. And I, I heard Lori say in, uh, in the first half hour how, you know, eat when you're hungry, not just because you think you need to eat. Well, a lot of that was propagated, again, through Ansel Keys and the cereal makers, right? You have your People in the 70s and 80s and into the 90s were told to have a bowl of cereal and skim milk. And, and, and so that sets you up on, a, on that blood sugar roller coaster where by 10 o'clock you're, you're peckish and wanting to eat. And then, so it's, it's, it's great for the, the food manufacturers. And then long term, as we found, we found out the wrong way, it's great for me, me, modern healthcare in terms of revenues. So I want people to step back and think about the evolutionary model. And that is... Primitive man didn't get up in the morning, have a bowl of oatmeal, grab a couple of gels and a spear and go out hunting. He had to get up and go hunting and gathering as if his life depended on it. So that meant he had to perform. So yesterday uh, I did what, what's called a fast ascent of Mount Whitney. And uh, for all of you who don't know, Mount Whitney is the highest uh, point in the continental United States. And um, it's, the, 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 the Mount Whitney Trail starts at about 8,200 feet and goes, and so you go from 8,200 feet up to 14,500 over an 11 mile trail. Um, this was my second ascent and I took two hours off it, but I started the run hike fasted with a Vespa. So I took 18 calories in. So technically not fasted, but for all intents and purposes, fasted. And I went up the mountain in four hours and 45 minutes to the summit uh, with two other Vespas. So I took in a total of 50 calories, somewhere around 50, 60 calories uh, over 11 miles with super high effort, you know, um, and oxygen deficit and never felt hungry, felt totally focused. Um, And I had eaten except for a very light snack before I went to sleep. I had eaten at about 3.30 3.30 in the afternoon. So from 3.30 in the afternoon on Monday to Monday morning, and I did not eat a meal. I had 150 calories on the top, a cheese stick and a beef stick and a couple pieces of candy. And I didn't eat till five o'clock that afternoon. And I wasn't hungry. And that, that's, that's kind of it is because I 
been able to tap into it. And Vespa definitely does help that, but we've done all the other things that Lori described. It's very important. Um, and, and one of the things we want to really talk about, and, and then I'm not sore today. I'm going to go for a run after this interview because <laughs> it's, going to help, it's going to help circulate the blood and really supercharge the adaptive stress I got out of that, that workout. I'm feeling great. So um, once again, you know, this is huge in terms of when you prevent that damage, it allows the body to focus more on getting stronger and fitter. And when you say, look at Lori as an Ironman triathlon, you look at the heroes we have, especially a lot of the older people. We have a couple of athletes I work with that are in their 50s and 60s. Jeff Browning, who's one of the top ultra runners, and Kuni Yamagata, who's 68 years old. They're doing Western States, and two weeks later, they're doing um, – Hard Rock, which is an even harder 100 mile, mountain 100 miler in Colorado. So within two weeks, they're turning around. And as a point, I'm also, the reason I'm on Mount Whitney is I'm getting ready to pace an athlete who's doing the Badwater 135, and he wants to set the record for the Badwater 146. And, and most people, don't, this, is, this gets into the realm of stupid, but I want to bring this back for the audience. The Badwater... 146 is the original race and it ran from Badwater Death Valley, the lowest point in the continental United States, like 286 feet below sea level, all the way to the top of Mount Whitney, which is 14,500. But then after a couple of years of this shenanigans, the Forest Service cut it off because you have to have permits technically to go up to the top of Mount Whitney. So Michele Graglia, who has a book coming out, is going to run Badwater the race, the 135, finish it at the Whitney portal, and then he's going to continue on to set a record for the 146. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. And now, to bring this back, I mean, these are crazy things that people are doing, but genetically, these people aren't any different from from the audience. And wherever you are, you can start to make that shift back to fat as fuel. And yes, you need to make some dietary adjustments, but but people get so hung up on the diet and they start eating fat bombs and this, and then they, then they wonder why they're not losing weight and they're, they're either constipated or have diarrhea or they're lethargic because they're not getting enough sodium. And, you know, diet is, is one big tool, but it's really about you and getting your body back to that natural state where, where it wants to metabolize fat for aerobic metabolism. That's actually that you brought me to my next point. So, I was going to ask you what, what your favorite, um, you know, fat snacks or what you like to add in. Because I think what people don't understand, this isn't, um, and I, I hate to throw the Atkins under the bus thing, but this isn't like forcing tons of high saturated fats and fat for, because fats are high in calories. We're not saying force, force, force fats. I'm saying cut the carbs way back, eat when you're hungry and throw some healthy fats in there to make your energy sources last longer. And I was going to ask what your favorites were, but I was also going to ask how does that make your utilization of carbohydrates improved? So when we talk about racing and utilization of when you do put carbohydrates into your body, how does that improve it? Well, not only not only do, does it improve carbohydrate utilization for performance, but a lot of your people here aren't going to be doing, you know, big races or anything. They just want to be healthy, right? Yeah. And so improving your fat adaptation is going to improve your 
your carbohydrate tolerance. So those those odd occasions when you're at a social event and you don't want to be a, a, a wallflower or, or make feel feel like the odd person out or you're insulting somebody, you can have something, you know, it's like, or the odd time you want something, your body will tolerate it a lot better. And, and I, once again, I want people to think about the evolutionary model. It's like, when you think about it in the context of evolution, we had concentrated forms of carbohydrates three to five times a year, like when fruit was ripe or berries are ripe or tubers are ripe, or we found honey. Those were we had them on occasion and we had the insulin sensitivity to where when that fruit was ripe, it was only ripe for a few brief days before it turned bad. And then it, some of it turned into alcohol and we figured out alcohol, right? But, but it was only ri- available for a very short period of time. So we, we got as much, you know, we have this natural urge to crave these things and eat them. And, 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 and then we went right back to hunting and gatherings. So we had, we had, what I would call, you know, non-starchy vegetables and non-sweet fruits we eat like vegetables, right? And we had meat. That's pretty clear in the, uh, in the anthropod. So, so those things didn't, we went right back to those, got our insulin sensitivity back and went. We didn't have concentrated forms of carbohydrates and simple sugars in our diet three to five times a day for decades, which is exactly how most people are doing today without honestly knowing what the impacts of those and why we're really robust, you know, doing that for decades has been our undoing. So what the audience needs to know is, is carbohydrates can, can improve your performance once you're fat adapted. They can improve your health once you're fat adapted. However, it's not something you want to be doing every day chronically all the time. And this is where you see all these people. I've, t- I've had conversations with athletes and it's just, well, I hate to say it, but there was a there was a group of Latinos on the mountain at trail camp yesterday at 12,000 feet, and one woman was really struggling. And the man in the group was overweight, and he says, I keep telling her to eat. I eat, and I'm fine. He was grossly overweight. He says, I got to eat all the time, and I eat, I feel fine. And it's like, the dis- unfortunately, people are getting, it's not that he's a bad person, it's the wrong information. And then the body is physiologically primed for those carbohydrates. And, and so it's like this little addiction. So you think you need it because they don't, they don't know the message of, of just how dangerous that is. And, and the guy clearly was a wreck. And here I am, I haven't eaten all day and I'm running down the trail past him. You know, <laughs> you know, we tried to get the lady help, but you know, the other guy I was running with was a, was actually a psychiatrist at UCSF. So, you know, but you know, there's so much you can do. Right. Yeah. So what is your, what is your favorite uh, f- fat food? Well, here's the thing that's interesting. I, I like get satiated really quickly with fat. So this thing with the ketard movement, the ketards, all the ketards and the fat bombs, I call them ketards. Oh, they lots of, lots of uh, <laughs> messages on that one, but that's all good. Go ahead. Yeah. But you know, they're pushing all these fat foods. It's like, you got to get your body to not to burn the dietary fat. It's to burn your body fat. That's what we're all looking for, right? So I tell people when I tell I'm trying to give them some real world instruction on how to how to eat, it's like add enough fat. Most, you know, most uh, protein sources that are in their natural form have a lot of fat to them, right? Right? So, you know, an egg 30%, 30% or more is a yolk or depending on the kind of eggs you got, right? You know, a ribeye steak can be like 65, 70% fat calories, right? So, a lot of your real 
full food protein sources that have a lot of fat. And then what, so I tell people to do that's a real easy thing is add enough fat to your, your non-starchy, non-sweet carbohydrates like salads, vegetables, et cetera, and your protein to make it taste good. And, and that way you're not overdoing the fat and, and going crazy. That, that seems to work really well both for me because I'm like, I'm like, yeah, I like fat. Occasionally I'll have a rich cheese or I'll have butter on a, on a light rice cracker, but I'm not, it's usually paired with food and it, it's just, you know, eating just tons of fat, just, you don't, you, you know, when you're fat adapted and you're burning your body fat, you just don't eat that much. Right. That, and that's, I think that was the point that people think it's you're eating more volume and it's because you're eating, but you're not really eating more fat. It's almost like for me, and I know for females, it's a little different. Like I find that I need more than my husband as well, as far as fat goes in general um, yes. to feel well. Um, and I think that's really important. A lot of females get frustrated, especially in my office. We're meant to have more body fat. So just, just think about that from a, again, you talk about the, the physiologic perspective. Yeah, I need a little bit more fat than he does to feel good. Um, yes, I'm not your adding, body knows. Yeah, definitely. I'm not adding a ton back in. I'm. It's more eliminating something and adding something that's healthier or a better option for me. So, for example, a protein and veggies for dinner, whatever that protein is, you're right. Generally speaking, has enough fat in there that I'm not adding back in any more fat. Um, yeah, yeah. You don't need. To, you don't really need to. If it's like fish or skinless chicken breast, you might want to make a marsala sauce or a bernet sauce or hollandaise sauce. But it's, you know, like asparagus with like hollandaise sauce on it, How, or cream spinach. I mean, it's rich. Or a good salad, like a Caesar salad with real Caesar dressing. I mean, yeah, it doesn't have to be like rocket science, right? I think people right. overthink this. Um, so let's let's talk. Really, I think we have a couple minutes left. So let's talk briefly about how. I think we don't ever get enough talk about Vespa. So let's talk about, one, how you came up with Vespa, because I think it's a really cool story. And then what does it do? Why does it work? Um, okay. Yeah. This is a cool story. and It's, it's, it's not my, my making up. That, I'll leave that to the Japanese whom I work with. I'm half Japanese, but I'm going to give the credit to the Japanese, uh, Yasunori Kawahara, who actually got it real. And then there's... Dr. Abe, who was the entomologist who actually originally discovered it. Um, this happened in the 80s and 90s, um, uh, began with some Japanese, it's an accidental discovery of nature. And what I found is a lot of these, a lot of your, you know, blockbuster drugs were also accidental discoveries of nature. Um, uh, artemisin, which is a drug for malaria, Ivermectin, which has cured river blindness, and it's talked about now a lot. Uh, we won't get into that. Um, penicillin. All these, these, these drugs, have, they're all made from natural biological compounds. They're, so this is what Vespa is. And, and it started with these Dr. Abe and some of his colleagues studying the Japanese giant wasp, otherwise known here in the media as the murder hornets, right? And so they were they were studying this hornet and, and they soon came to find that this hornet was capable of some incredible feats of strength endurance. Um, it would fly on average about 60 to 70 kilometers a day, it could fly up to 100 kilometers a day at a pretty good speed. And in that it would hunt and gather a lot of it was, it's a predatory wasp. It's the ape, it's one of the apex predators of the insect world. And so it's like, vicious and one of its main prey and the reason the wasp is doing so well is the main prey 
today is an introduced species called the European honeybee. The European honeybee doesn't know how to defend itself. So a small gang of the, a scout will find a hive of European honeybees and a small group of these wasps will fly in and literally rip heads off and then take the honey and take the body parts. They'll masticate it into a food ball and they'll take it back to the, their colony to feed to the larva. You know, this protein rich, um, compound and in exchange the larva gives it this peptide that causes it to fuel itself off the fat that's stored in its thorax the back part of an insect so they they started looking at this and started reviewing the literature and it turns out bees wasps ants termites all use this mechanism of trophlaxis, which is this symbiotic relationship between the larva and the adult. The, the adult gives them food. The larva gives them this peptide that allows them to trap into their fat stores. And what happened was they hypothesized that um, because animal cells are remarkably similar across species, and you, and you know from your experience in, in science, they use things as primitive as nematodes to fruit flies to mice ants, you know, they move up the, the animal chain to do studies on basic research because you can accelerate the thing and you're not doing any weird things to a human being. So, but it's because on a cellular level, um, cells, animal cells are very similar. Okay. So they, they made this, 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 this hypothesis that um, it would exert the same influence in, in other species. So they did some, some swimming to exhaustion tests with re- lab rats and mice and found that sure enough there was this huge increase in fat oxidation a lot less glucose utilization a lot lower lactate load okay so they weren't producing lactic acid because they weren't burning the sugar and so then then they went and started studying with with athletes and and um and and sure enough it did this so in 2000 1990 late 1990s 2000 uh Mr. Kawahara, my, my manufacturing partner in Japan, um, developed the, the process to extract that peptide um, for Vespa. So it's been, you know, it's been here in the United States since 2000. But as you know, as you trace the history, it's always been about the carbohydrates. So we've been on this road of, of, of trying to turn everything around because I started my journey on fat adaptation in 2002 at the same at two, in 2002 about this is madness this whole thing that we're pushing all this sugar on athletes and it's really about burning fat at a high rate your own body fat and so that's where we we came from and then in 2006 that's when our paths crossed when I was running western states a friend tossed me a couple pouches and said try this my friend Mojo who's a psychiatrist swears by him and and that's where that's that's again uh, how I got started on it, um, but but the whole idea has been about this thing with with um, getting your body back to metabolizing fat. And in my work with Vespa and supporting Vespa athletes, um, all this epiphany came about because I my early adopters were people who were, had stomach and gut issues. They tried; they'd been doing the conventional sports nutrition, and literally had wrecked themselves. And that's why I had this epiphany I was, when I started looking into the physiology and the textbooks and started to look at things like diabetes, heart disease papers and all that. I somehow had this put all these different dots together. And it's like, you know, 
this is this is a train wreck. And, and like I said, it's not a question of if you're going to have a problem, it's when and what form when you're um, doing a lot of carbs. And so Vespa is a is a wonderful tool, whether you're just wanting to be recreation, recreational, get off the couch, suppress your hunger triggers to, to get yourself fat adapted to these crazy people who are doing 100 mile runs, Ironmans, um, running across deserts. Um, you know, you don't have to be, but the thing is, is, is the stuff I do, the stuff my athletes do, we take what we learn on that ragged edge. Cause you always learn on those ragged edges, right? Um, both, both the good and the bad. And then we can bring and translate that back down into really great um, solutions for regular folks to get fit. And, and, and really, you know, it's like, like I've told you, it's important that we um, get people adapted get them doing some level of exercise at whatever rate because exercise induces that adaptive stress to tell the body to keep getting stronger and rebuilding itself. Right. I think that's where we kind of got at the end of last time we talked, it was, we were kind of, it was more focused towards the athlete, right? So I wanted this one to be focused more towards everyday and weight loss. I think people are looking to get fit at, you know, we're unquarantined for the most part and we're all out and about. And I think this is a really important thing to think about is, is where are, what, what paradigm are you going to follow really? I mean, are you, are you going to go with this mainstream paradigm that really, I think we've pretty much proven um, was, I guess the best way to describe it was political and, and power and money and nature, to be honest, or are we going to really go with where the science is showing us that the, the data does support that there's lack of less inflammation, um, more efficiency, um, better health outcomes with a fat adapted diet and Vespa helps you get there. And, and in any form that you use it, right, Peter, I mean, you can use it as a, like I like to use it or, or as an athlete. Um, so yeah, we both, we both use it. Like I use it for yeah. when I have to be on point with a presentation or a Lord. business meeting. Yeah. For the mental focus, because you're, you're what I call blood sugar stable and that blood sugar sta- stability keeps you emotionally focused, emotionally stable And then also your motor skills, your fine motor skills stay sharp. Well, on that note, we have a minute left, guys. So I'm going to say we just did awesome, Peter. So I do have that code. Um, I'm going to put it up online for you guys to order, but it is VespaPower.com. I also have it on my personal website, which is MyDrLori.com, M-Y-D-R-L-O-R-I.com. Peter's blogs are awesome at VespaPower.com. You can enroll on his mailing list to get on his um, emails. And we'll see you another week. We'll see you next Wednesday. We'll definitely bring Peter back because he's amazing and he's always got a story to tell for us. And uh, hopefully we won't have another rainy Wednesday. I'm just praying it's not rainy and stormy. Well, we have beautiful sun out here in California. (laughs) (laughs) But we're in a drought. We need the rain. (laughs) I know. Well, maybe we'll send some your way, but uh, I would rather be there than here right now, I think. All right. right, Thanks very much, Lori. You're welcome. Have a good night. Enjoy. Thank you for tuning in to Anti-Aging Unraveled. Be sure to join Dr. Lori Gerber again next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time and 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We'll talk again next week and keep you aging gracefully. 